Welcome to the Painter's Dialectic Podcast. I am your host, Josh Green, a painter and art educator living in New York City. And today I'm joined again by philosopher Dylan Ahn, and we are starting our fifth dialogue of the Know Thyself series, which will explore the practice of meditation. This series will guide the listener through the fundamentals of meditation and the process of gaining self-knowledge. In this episode, we explore mindfulness of air and breath. Very rarely do we appreciate the atmosphere or comprehend the power of the breath. In this episode, we discuss how to clean your air and how to use your breath to improve physical and mental health. The breath is the bridge between the conscious and subconscious mind and even your physiology. Remember, don't just listen to the podcast, participate in it. Like, subscribe, share content, leave comments. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can go to the Patreon page, The Pain is Dialectic, and subscribe. You can also support us directly through Spotify. If you'd like to study with me, you can go to greenatelier.art and sign up for lessons. If you'd like to see my website, it's joshgreenart.com. If you'd like to see our Instagram page, it's The Pain is Dialectic. And my Instagram is joshgreenartist. Dylan, it's good to see you again. Good to see you. How are you? Doing good. Another episode on mindfulness today, and I think I want to make people aware of just some things they can do in their everyday life before we even get to meditation. Just how to raise awareness of, you know, things that often get overlooked, things that are considered mundane, but are very critical to your success in meditation and just these things are highly beneficial for your health in general. I just wanted to point these out, and these have a ancient roots in, in all of the spiritual practices, going all the way back to, you know, shamanic traditions. Today I wanted to talk about air and breath. So does that sound like a good plan? Yeah, let's do right. it. All right, so first, you know, breathing in air, we're going to become mindful of the atmosphere around us, and I thought it might be nice to just state some facts about the atmosphere and air that people never really think about, right? But it's very important. Our atmosphere is a gaseous membrane that protects the earth, just like a cell membrane does, right? It filters what's allowed to come in and out of the atmosphere. And so our atmosphere is 78% nitrogen, and most of our breath is nitrogen, but that doesn't pass into our blood. It just goes right back out. But 78% is nitrogen. 20% is oxygen. And 1% is argon. And then 0.03% is carbon dioxide. Mm-hmm. I thought that was interesting. And then there's many other atoms in the atmosphere, but they're far below you know, 1%, way less. So these are the major components. But I thought that was interesting, that 0.03 carbon dioxide. So it's just a little amount of carbon dioxide that has a huge effect on the climate, right? So our atmosphere is divided into four levels. We live in the, the troposphere, and then above that is the stratosphere, then the mesosphere, and then the thermosphere. The troposphere, you know, contains the clouds and things like that. It expands and contracts with temperature, 
you know, it kind of breathes with the seasons. And so it'll be different thicknesses on different parts of the earth. I guess around the poles, it would be contracted. And then around the equator, it'd be expanded, right? Mm -hmm. And then depending on the tilt of the season, it would expand and contract probably with that in the different hemispheres. The, just above that is the stratosphere, which contains the ozone, which filters out most of the harmful radiation, especially the ultraviolet radiation, which if we don't block that, it would shred our DNA, right, and cause mm -hmm. cancer. It filters out a lot of this dangerous radiation. And then high up in the thermosphere, a lot of radiation is filtered out. And the temperatures in the thermosphere, you know, pretty much outer space, can reach a thousand degrees of Celsius, right? Extreme mm -hmm. temperatures high above the Earth. So basically the atmosphere is filtering all this intense radiation coming from the sun or coming from other sources right mm -hmm. without it we would just be shredded by radiation not only that but the atmosphere regulates the earth's temperature right so if you think we're sitting in front of the sun all the time shouldn't the planet just heat up exponentially mm -hmm. Right, but that's not the case. If you just sit in front of a fire for too long, your knees will start burning or whatever, but the earth doesn't do that. There's this filtration process of coming through the atmosphere, right, that reduces the radiation. Clouds can reflect 80% of the solar, solar radiation, but also the oceans and this bouncing back of energy can help stabilize the temperature. So that's a really incredible thing about the atmosphere, is it protects us and stabilizes temperature to create a balanced environment. And you'll mm -hmm. see any type of biology you're learning about, any ecosystem you're learning about, balance, homeostasis is essential, so also the planet is able to do that through the atmosphere. We abuse our atmosphere. We don't care about it. <laughs> we dump all kind of chemicals there, but there are natural sources of pollution volcanoes, wildfires, things like that, that just happen. But there's a lot of human pollution created through energy production and agriculture, mainly. The burning of fossil fuels, farming beef, you know, produces a lot of methane, which will increase the global temperature and will create extreme weather, will create more pollution, will create a rise in mold, pollen production, smog, the burning of coal creates sulfurous pollution. There's a lot of chemical smog from cities, uh, nitrogen oxides from gasoline and paint fumes and things like that. But I think one interesting thing to mention is when we're having an ozone crisis, I don't know if you're, you were alive in the 90s maybe, but during that time, the government did something about it, stopped mm. the production of those chemicals. The whole society yeah. took a part of it and corrected that. Mm -hmm. So I think that's something we should go back and look at is the ozone crisis. We did something about that and changed it very fast within a decade, mm -hmm. right? We corrected this climate because if we didn't correct that, we would die, you know, we'd get shredded by this ultraviolet radiation. I think that's interesting to look at that in comparison to the, the current global, current climate crisis, right? Based on global mm -hmm. warming, which I think everybody knows about, so I won't go into that. Another really important part of, of purifying our air is just these big forests, the Amazon and things like that, 
filter air and I wanted to introduce a study by NASA how you can clean your air in your house with plants. Of the plants tested, these were the two that filtered out all of the toxins in the air. And so the florist chrysanthemum and the peace lily were the two that did the most filtration. And so a key part of this is the pot it's in. So you can't just put it in a normal pot. You need to put it in a pot where the air can go through the soil because it was in two parts. The air had to come through the soil and then move up through the plant to be filtered. So they created this pot where air can enter in. There's kind of like a mesh inside the pot that creates a, an air barrier between the soil. We're gonna do that. I was thinking about ways I could build that. There's like these little orchid cages that I could put inside of a pot. That way there's this air allowed to go in or a net or something like that. So I think I might build something like that, but people should be aware of those plants and that you can put those in, those in your room and they filter a massive amount of air, right? All kind of things, your wall paint, a lot of blankets and things like that are covered in formaldehyde and uh, chemicals that won't burn. Uh, many of the building materials are covered in these, these toxic chemicals and they fill your house. And then also air filtration isn't always great, the normal systems that we have. So plants are very effective at cleaning your air and I think should be a part of your normal day. So I'm gonna look into buying some peace lilies and building a pot for myself. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> so now I wanna talk about the breath, now that we kinda of talked about basic things to consider about air and appreciating the atmosphere and thinking about um, what you could do to improve atmospheric health, which seems like people don't care about. <laughs> um, it's just breath. Breath is our source of vitality, right? I think that's obvious. You can't go very long without breathing. Five minutes or something, you may die, right? You can go a while without water. You can go a long time without food, but breath, not so long. So breath has enormous effects on our mental health and physical health, the way we breathe. And one of the extraordinary things that every meditative tradition knows about is that the breath is a bridge between the conscious mind and the subconscious mind, and especially automated processes of the body. You can access your physiology through the breath. So at any moment, we can take control of our breathing and shape our state of mind. Through one's, you know, breath control, you can, you can change your excitability, your reactiveness to a situation. I have generalized anxiety and panic disorder, right? I'm highly aware of how to use the breath now. I've been able to manage it and not have any panic attacks for years now, just mm -hmm. through a lot of breath control. So I'm going to talk about those for people. And also, breath work is becoming popular. If you do have anxiety or panic, I'm going to tell you the breath work that you should not do because you can induce panic attacks very quickly with breath work. But I think for people with anxiety and panic disorders, breath work is way more effective on controlling your mental state than meditation. Certain types of meditation can have a negative effect on those mental disorders because you're already so hyper aware of your body. You don't need to be even more hyper aware. <laughs> you need to externalize your mind. I'm going to talk about, you know, the mechanics of breathing, some of the chemistry of breathing, and then I'm going to give some exercises to shape your mind. 
And breathwork is ancient. Our breath has parallel pathways, neural pathways, that communicate information from the brain to the lungs and from the lungs back. Um, those are chemical and mechanical, right? So the mechanics of breathing is we either breathe through the nose or the mouth. The air goes through the larynx, which is a rigid pipe, which is important so it doesn't collapse. I don't know if when you're a kid you tried to breathe through a hose in a pool. The hose collapses because it's not rigid. Uh, your lungs are basically a pump, and they're full of these little sacs called avioli, right? These little balls to increase the surface area of your breath. And then wrapped around those avioli are little capillaries where the oxygen can get into your bloodstream. And then the breath is controlled by two muscle groups. One is your diaphragm, and the second one is your intercostal muscles. Okay, so your diaphragm is like a giant sheet that rests on the bottom of your lungs, right? And if you put your hands above your belly button and below your ribcage and just breathe in, you'll feel an extension, right? And that's diaphragmatic breathing. And then your intercostal muscles are these little interwoven muscles in between your rib cages. And when you do intercostal breathing, you'll feel an expansion in your rib cage and a lifting in your shoulders. Okay, so that's the three parts of breath. It's the diaphragm, the, the stomach extension, the ribs expanding sideways, and the shoulders raising up. So the nerve innervation of those muscles, those two muscle groups, so the phrenic nerve comes from the neck down into the diaphragm. And the phrenic nerve has two systems. One, the motor, right, it, it, the movement of it, right, of the muscle, which either drops down for an inhale or it goes up for exhale, right? There's also a sensory component. So you can feel your diaphragm at all times, right? So you get that information, it's expanded or it's relaxed, right? And so a lot of people, that, that muscle may be a little stiff from bad breathing. And so a good way to train that is you can just lay on your bed with your hands on your stomach and practice a very calming, rising, and relaxing diaphragmatic breath. Some people even put books on their stomach. And they'll just do that for a period of time to help strengthen that, that nervous system or strengthen that muscle, right? Because it can become rigid over time, you become a chest breather. So as far as like anxiety and panic, I've noticed that if I breathe diaphragmatically, it's a lot more relaxing. And you notice that you do diaphragmatic breathing at night when you're asleep. And mainly you chest breathe when you're running or doing some type of exercise. If you're highly anxious, just take a moment to notice what part of your chest you're breathing in. If it's up high, which is usually the case, you might be in a fight or flight mode. A really quick way to change that is just put your hands on your stomach and switch to diaphragmatic breathing. And I did that for a long time. It was very effective. So the brain regions that control the innervation of these, of these breathing is the pre-Butzinger complex, which is control of rhythmic breathing, right? This is kind of your automated breathing. And the other one is called the parafacial nucleus, which is non-rhythmic breathing, doubling a breath or pausing, conscious control breath. And so you kind of go back and forth through all of them during the day, but if you go to sleep, you're going to be rhythmic breathing. If you're maybe running or talking or, you know, doing something like that, you might be using the parafacial nucleus. 
But you have these two centers that do different things. And a lot of people who black out doing opioids, the opioids suppress rhythmic breathing and they actually die from that, from the ceasing of rhythmic breath. So this is the bridge right here, these two. So you can at any moment make this automatic process conscious. You can't do that with digestion. You can't do that with anything else. That's why they say the bridge is the gateway to your physiology and to controlling your mind is through these um, two brain regions. There's some differences between nose breathing and mouth breathing. So when you nose breathe, there is obviously a resistance. If you do that right now, just breathe in through your nose, you'll feel that it's harder to breathe in through your nose than it is through your mouth. But that resistance actually allows you to breathe in more. You actually take in more air through your nose than you can through your mouth. If you just take a moment and try that out, you'll see that that's true. Also, very importantly, is that your nose has hairs in it that filter any particles in the air and also bacteria, right? That keeps you from getting infections and things like that. Also, in the back of the nasal cavity, it heats up the air, warming it before it gets to your lungs, and it humidifies it. So breathing through your nose conditions the air, and breathing through your mouth does not do that. So as we breathe, the air is coming into our lungs, it's filling up the alveoli, these little sacs, and the oxygen is passing into the capillaries, and the oxygen is going into the red blood cells, which contain hemoglobin, which is an iron oxide, and actually... That iron oxide has been in a lot of the paint episodes that we talk about. I think what's pretty interesting, it's been one of the most popular pigments since prehistoric art. It's still used today, I still use it, but that is what carries the oxygen to all the cells. And then what's very important is that those cells use the carbon dioxide to unlock the oxygen. So you have to have carbon dioxide in your body to breathe. So that carbon dioxide unlocks the oxygen and hemoglobin, and then the blood brings it back to the alveoli where it's released through the exhale, right? So you have to have a balance of carbon dioxide and oxygen in the body to breathe properly. And so the quickest way to induce a panic attack is by hyperventilation. When you're, you're inhaling a lot, bringing a lot of oxygen, but you're getting rid of all your carbon dioxide and therefore you're not able to take the oxygen in. Carbon dioxide is also a vasodilator, so your blood starts constricting, you'll feel tingling in your body, and you might have a lightheadedness because your brain is not getting oxygen. And so nervous system becomes hyperstimulated, and that can result in a panic attack. So in some of the breathwork we're doing with hyperventilation, People with panic or anxiety don't want to do this because you're going to flood your body with cortisol and adrenaline, trigger a panic attack. So just be aware of that. In time, I do those hyperventilation um, breath work now, and I'm fine. I haven't had any panic attacks, but you have to really train your body over time. It's been shown that nose breathing is the best way to breathe because it filters and conditions your air. There's, there's massive aesthetic effects that happens. It changes the structure of your face. 
people who nose breathe are much more attractive than people who mouth breathe. It you know changes your cheeks, changes your jawline, changes the structure of your nose, changes your palate if you're a mouth breather, and your your tongue may not fit into your palate. That's one way to know that your face is being shaped by mouth breathing is your tongue may not fit behind your teeth. A lot of negative health side effects to mouth breathing. One is dry mouth, you can have bad breath, snoring, hoarseness in your voice, gingivitis, you have a high narrow palate so your tongue doesn't fit in your mouth, you'll have a narrower face, tired eyes, a crooked nose, a receding chin. It will disrupt your sleep. Uh, this can disrupt if children mouth breathe, it can affect their growth, it can affect your academic performance. It's incredibly important to breathe through your nose as much as possible. You can't do that all the time, like when you're exercising or having a conversation, you have to breathe through your mouth, but you want to train yourself to breathe through your nose as much as possible. Things that make you a mouth breather might be allergies. If you get allergy medicine and give that to your children as they're growing up, it can affect their face and their health and their overall like IQ, you know, as they develop because they weren't mouth breathing at night. If you know, you have trouble sleeping because you're mouth breathing at night, you develop sleep apnea maybe because you have too much weight or there's some people just mouth breathe anyways and develop sleep apnea. That can have massive negative effects on you. Increased anxiety throughout the day, increased risk for stroke and cardiovascular disease, cognitive degeneration and dementia and erectile dysfunction. A popular trend right now, you know, besides getting the sleep apnea machine, is people use medical tape and they tape their mouth shut at night, right? I haven't done it, but I'm thinking about doing it um, because I know I mouth breathe at night. Yeah, and you can also just by nose breathing through the day and being conscious of it, that'll also change the way you breathe at night. I don't know. A lot of people laughed at me when I said I was going to tape my <laughs> mouth shut at night. But it's a lot of people are doing it and it's having big effects. Mm. Another big difference between nose breathing and mouth breathing is evolutionary. A lot of mammals relied on their olfactory system. That used to be the dominant function, right? Is the scent, right? Not the eyes, not the ears. It was scent. We survived off our scent as little mice things, whatever we evolved from. When you breathe in through your nose, especially on the inhale, your cognitive function goes way up because mental function would go up as you're breathing in to process all that scent information. Cognitive processing goes down when you mouth breathe and when you exhale. So if you're inhaling a lot while you're learning, you should uh, be better off. That's another important thing about nose breathing. So there are big differences between inhalation and exhalation, right? When you inhale, your heart actually swells up a bit and adrenaline and stress hormone is released. You wake up, your brain is functioning at a higher level, like we said, you're in this state of arousal, right? And anyone who meditates will be aware that you kind of come to life on the inhale. And when you exhale, it's calming, it's relaxing, you're kind of dying, your brain activity is going down. And so every inhale and exhale, there's these chemical rhythms so one of the ways you can change your state of mind is through how long you inhale and how long you exhale. 
So if you wanted to relax, you may inhale one, two, three, four, and exhale one, two, three, four, five, six. So just that difference will add up over time to put you in a more restful state. If you're inhaling longer than you're exhaling, then you're going into a more alert, heightened state, right? That's why in hyperventilation can result in a panic attack because you're breathing in more than you're exhaling. Another very important thing is that there is a healthy way to breathe because of mouth breathing and things like I said, most people underbreathe at night, which you can correct through the, the things I just said, mouth taping and training nose breathing during the day, sleep apnea, as uh, allergy medication, things like that. But people overbreathe during the day. So your homeostasis of oxygen, your balance of oxygen and carbon dioxide are not ideal. And so I'm going to present a little exercise to see what you can do. And this came from Neuroscience Lab at the Huberman podcast. If you know him, they came up with this technique. It's called a carbon dioxide tolerant test. Okay, so you get out stopwatch on your phone, sit down in a chair, breathe normally through your nose for a while. Okay, and just let your body kind of relax in normal state of breathing. And then you're going to take a deep inhale through your nose, filling up the stomach's extending, your ribs are expanding, your shoulders are coming up. A deep inhale. And then just hold that for a second. And then you slowly exhale. When you exhale, start the timer. And it's not about holding your breath a long time. And there's nothing to do with your fitness at all. Okay, it has to do with your carbon dioxide tolerance. So you want to slowly exhale, you know, as slow as you can control it constantly, and you see how long that goes. So if you have a low tolerance, it'll be 20 seconds or less, right, that you could extend the breath. You have a moderate tolerance, it's 25 seconds to 40 seconds. And if you have a high tolerance, it's 50 or more. So if you had a low tolerance, you write down three. If you had mo moderate, you know, if you're at 25, you maybe write 5. If you're at 40, you write 6. Okay, if you had a high tolerance, say if you got 45, you write an 8. If you got around 55, you write 9. You're over a minute, you write 10. And so these are now the walls for your box breathing. Okay, so you have to do that experiment first to know how long you should do box breathing for. And so their lab recommended doing this exercise once or twice a week for two minutes, box breathing exercise. So say if you had a low, you inhale for one, two, three, hold for one, two, three, exhale, one, two, three, hold for one, two, three, and you keep repeating that, right, for two minutes. And what this does is it strengthens that connection through the phrenic nerve to your diaphragm. Right, so you're becoming in control of that muscle and coming in control of your breathing process and you're retraining those two brain regions that we talked about earlier to breathe in a different way in your rhythmic breathing, right, when it goes automatic to be at a more homeostatic state. So this can greatly improve your mental and physical health, just this two-minute exercise you do once or twice a week. They also, from that lab, came up with a breathing, a breathwork exercise called cyclic sighing, which is becoming very popular. It was this 
a way to reduce chronic stress around the, around the clock. It was the shortest and most effective practice to reduce stress for the entire day and also to improve sleep. So this is what it sounds like. It's two inhales and one long exhale. So it's... So there was a full inhale, diaphragm expansion, shoulder raise, and then a little extra inhale at the top. So... And then a long exhale. Inhale through the nose, exhale through the mouth. And so if you did that at any moment where you started feeling stress, it dramatically reduced the stress that moment. And what they did in their experiment is they would do that cyclic sighing for five minutes. That's it, five minutes every day. And that dramatically reduced stress through the entire day and night. I don't know how much easier that can get, you know? So those are two very powerful, with strong research behind it, that will dramatically change your physiology and improve your mental and physical health. Another really popular one, mainly because of this, this wild guy named Wim Hof, is um, Tuma breathing, which is called cyclic hyperventilation. And so I've practiced this one uh, pretty extensively. This is the one I do not recommend for anyone with panic or anxiety. This is the one that will put you in that panic state. And so you do this cyclic deep inhale, deep exhale for about 30 to 35 breaths. And you start feeling the tingles, your vasals, your, your veins are constricting, you're becoming lightheaded. It's a dramatic shift in, in, in your biochemistry. It's very noticeable. Adrenaline's high, stress, stress is high. One of the cool things about it is you're purposely doing a stress inoculation. You're putting your body in a controlled, high-stress environment. And this can teach you how to remain calm in a very high-stress state. So I noticed when I did this, there were times I had to stop because it was triggering panic, the panic cycle. So I would have to stop it. This had dramatic effects on my day. I could feel I was in like a different body. I think it does help you to really learn how to manage a high stress level. Uh, and there's also many other chemical effects that are long lasting from doing that cyclic breathing. I'm not going to teach it because I don't want to get in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> but you can find it. In Tibet, they use it to deal with very cold temperatures. So some of the monks will put a very cold, wet sheet on them and they're in their underwear and they'll go walk around outside in the snow. And through this breath work, they're able to dry that sheet and not go into hypothermia. So there's really incredible superhuman type of uh, things that you can do. Also doing like Wim Hof breathing, I was able to hold my breath on, on a full exhale, right? So there's no air in my lungs for over three minutes. So, Really incredible things start happening during breath work. I just wanted to bring that up to your attention. Those are just some facts about the air and breath. There's lots of research on this now. There's many, many breath work exercises out there. You can kind of hack into releasing very specific chemicals. I know people who even 
do this to kind of have like hallucinations and, and all kinds of stuff. You know, you can do incredible things just through the breath, especially that hyperventilation. I felt like I was on drugs for maybe several hours after that, like very calming effect. But I think that's it. I'll shut up now. And um, <laughs> but yeah, Dylan, uh, did any of that affect you at all? Or maybe you're already aware of all that. I think one important thing that you started off with is mentioning the importance of the environment to your right. breath, right? So obviously these things, you know, we're not in full control of the sort of air that we get, right? And it's good to know that where you are and where you situate yourself will have a huge difference in the quality of the breathing you'll be doing, right? Definitely. If you're in the middle of a really busy city where, you know, car pollution is everywhere, that's not going to give you the same sort of breathing effects if you were out hiking in the wilderness, right? If you're in a quiet, you know, countryside area. Of course, that's going to have the environment and choosing a suitable location is something that I, yeah, it's rightly brought up. Um, when you mentioned if I was born in that, really, I'm actually a 2000 year 2000 baby. Okay. So I just was like in the middle <laughs> of like environmental um, thing. I, I sort of spent a little bit of my childhood in Australia actually, and that was where the massive hole in the ozone was. <laughs> As a kid, we were taught in primary school, you know, educated a little bit about you know about the ozone layer, about CFCs, right? The um, chloro, the carbon what is it, chlorofluorocarbons, right, that you find in refrigerants and aerosols. Yeah. And you're right, and then people notice this, and they're like, oh, this is actually really, really bad, right? This is awful. <laughs> and they eventually and they say, okay, we're, <laughs> yeah, they were, we're going to start with the aerosols. We're going to start with putting CFCs in, in the refrigerants. Um, and so that was, you know, one, and now the ozone has healed, right? So it shows, again, that, a part of our practice is dependent on the actions of others, right? It's dependent on the location and the environment. Um, so that's quite good to note. Um, on the Buddhist side of things, so a lot of meditations, uh, and I work a little bit in, you know, psychology. I have a bit of psychology training because I volunteer for like a suicide hotline. And one of the things that we give as, you know, advice are these grounding exercises. And these grounding exercises usually revolve around breathing, right? Mm -hmm. It could be, you know, if people are uncomfortable doing breath work, they could be, you know, tell me five things you see in the room. It could be something like that. But a lot of them revolve around breathing. And so sometimes they'll use an app, sometimes they'll, they'll follow a guide. But it shows, as you rightly say, that the relationship between our cognition, our psychology, and our mind and our physiology and our bodies are not as wide of a gap as we'd like to think, right? We have this sense of dualism where our bodies and minds are separate things, but in actuality that they are very much part of the same thing. They're very much two sides of the same coin. And so when we do any sort of work on our critical thinking on our minds, I think one thing we neglect is taking care of our bodies at the same time. Right. Turns out the more you take care of your body, right, the more it helps with you taking care of your mind. Right. So, yes, there is breath work. Yes, there's breath exercises, but there's also exercise. <laughs> there's also <laughs> diet. There's also rest right? that goes into breathing. And so a lot of people, when they do breathing exercise or when they do meditation, they often either 
have too much going on in their heads that makes it very hard to focus, or they have too little and it makes them very, very sleepy. And so antidotes to this is not to be found in when you're doing the breathing exercise, but all the preparatory work before you're going to doing the breathing exercises, right? If you had a big meal and then you go into a breath, you're gonna be tired, you're gonna be sleepy, right? Cause you had a big meal, right? Or if you've just come off from a run, right? You're going to a breathing exercise, that would be a bit more difficult, right? So choosing the location is one thing and also recognizing the relationship between the body and mind, right? Is another, and you're right. like. Breathing is the most obvious or direct way into accessing some form of control over our physiology, right? As with all of the medical uh, and scientific and biological instances that you've noted, right? Breathing has a huge, it's a huge indicator of our emotions and our psychological mindset, right? Breathing comes into play when we're angry, breathing comes into play when we're upset, breathing comes into play when you're anxious, when you're nervous, right? All of it has, shows up as changes in breath, right? Including heart rate as well, and that is related to the breath. So it's a whole respiratory system and circulatory system and nervous system is all at work here, all tied in with uh, the breath and our mind and our biology. So in Buddhism, that's the first thing that the Buddha recommends, right? Breathing meditation is part of the first noticing or the first development of awareness of the body for obvious reasons, right? Because breathing is embodied. And so the Buddha says, well, there is the case, right? Where a monk chooses an appropriate location, right? He mentions a few examples, having gone to the wilderness or to the shade of a tree or an empty you know, building, right? So choosing the location is the first thing, as you mentioned, like choosing a suitable environment. You don't wanna meditate on the side of like, you know, a high, you know, high-speed motorway. Then you sit down, folding your legs crosswise, holding uh, his body erect and setting mindfulness to the floor. So what that means is that also recognizing relationship of the body when it comes to breathing, right? Actually, how you situate your body, right, also has an effect on the quality of your breathing. So you mentioned about expanding the chest, but the Buddha also recommends crossing the legs, right? Uh, and the reason for this is that you notice um, uh, you know, people who train for flying jets, right? They need to wear these compression pants, these compression trousers. And what that is for is that when you experience great G-force, great pressure on your body, your blood just goes all the way down to your legs, right? And if you're flying, you know, a jet, you don't want to pass out. And so they have these compression trousers and they're trained to clench their thighs right, to clench their calves, to push the blood all the way back up again so they don't pass out, right? And so one thing we don't get taught usually is that our calves are actually our, is known as the second hearts of our body. Where our heart does all the pumping the up here. The calves, yeah. Really? But our calves also do a lot of work in getting the blood back up. <laughs> Right, and so you know, jet fight, you know, jet fighter pilots are trained to clinch, right, when they're experiencing a huge amount of G force to get the blood back up. Otherwise, they're gonna pass out there and then. The blood is not gonna get up there. Mm. So crossing your legs has a similar effect. What we want to do is encourage blood flow, right? It's because if we're gonna be still for a substantial amount of time. You don't want the blood to go somewhere and not be able to make its way back up again, <laughs> right? Especially if you're sitting, right? So one way of doing that is to fold your legs in a way that is mimicking the idea of clenching 
your leg muscles. So you're helping blood circulation so that your breathing actually does what it's supposed to do, which is to carry oxygen. So is right? that why they do the yeah. lotus, the lotus position with the... So when I, when I do like a sitting, I sit on my knees because my legs are too long and stiff mm. to do that. Mm. Would that negatively affect my blood circulation? So no, not at all. So it's just a matter of preference and what you can do, right? Mm -hmm. So any form of doing some form of clenching is good to help blood get back up, right? So whether you're kneeling, whether, but if you're kneeling, right, the drawback, right, if you're comparing the lowest position to kneeling, the drawback is that you're kneeling, you're putting a lot of body weight and pressure onto your legs, right? Mm -hmm. So that has the uh, unfortunate side of it over time, right? You might feel numbness, right? You might feel like your, your, you know, legs are in pain. So you have to reach that nice healthy balance where you don't want to put too much body weight on your legs. And so crossing means that you're still set on your butt, which means most of your weight is still on your butt. They're not forcing all of your body weight onto your legs, but you're still clenching just enough for the blood to get back up, right? So the mm. circulatory system is still working, right? And obviously, ideally, we want the blood to be able to get to the brain so that paying attention is possible, right? Why people tend to get tired easily is because, you know, one aspect of it is because of not enough rest or maybe they've had a large meal. But the other aspect is also if the brain is not getting enough oxygen, right? Mm -hmm. You're going to be tired. That's also a part of it as well. And so choosing a correct location, correct position is good, right? Keeping the body erect, so expanding the chest does the exact same thing, right? It's for the same goal, trying to get airflow and blood flow, right? To help you in this exercise, right? You wanna uh, allow yourself the conditions to help your breathing exercise to get the maximum effect out of it and not feel drowsy and fall over, tip over, right? And so that's the idea. And then finally, the key to any sort of mindfulness or meditation is your attention. So setting mindfulness to, to the fore is like, okay, I am going to pay attention now, right? So uh, in the beginning, the Buddha says, well, a person is paying attention to breathing in and breathing out. That is like the first stage, the most obvious stage, right? You don't wanna try and manipulate your breathing if you're starting breathing meditation, because as you say, right? If you think about it too hard, right? If you try to manipulate your breath too hard, you can actually, you know, cause a panic attack, right? Yeah. You might cause yourself to stop breathing. Okay, so the first stage is not to try and manipulate anything, just to watch it, be attentive to it, right? Allow yourself to breathe however you like, don't manipulate it, just breathe in and breathe out and to notice your breath coming in notice your breath going away. And so that is, you know, philosophically related to Buddhism, the idea of something arising, persisting for a while and ceasing to be, right? Understanding on a very basic level, impermanence, right? Impermanence of breath, that something is coming in and coming out, right? Then you might do a little bit more of attention. So the Buddha says, well, breathing in long, he discerns, I am breathing in long. Or breathing out long, he discerns, I am breathing out long. So you notice the length of your breath. Right? So if you're a person who breathes, takes huge breaths, and you notice, oh, I'm breathing in quite long, right? Or, you know, if you're a person who breathes short, right? He discerns I am breathing in short or I'm breathing out short. So you're, you're being able to tell the duration of breath. And so ideally you should move from big, long, exaggerated breaths into smaller and smaller and more natural breaths, right? 
you're trying to reduce activity, right? Because actually, although breathing is good for sort of a middle ground, you need appropriate amount of mental activity. You don't want to over agitate or over excite the brain, right? Too much. Otherwise, all of those subconscious thoughts start coming out again. That's when the mind gets really, really busy. So you don't want your mind to be blank as to fall asleep, nor do you want your mind to be so busy, you just can't handle it, right? So you want that happy balance where you don't want your breath to be exaggerated along like, you know, huge, big size, just try to maintain sort of calm and still breaths, short, not short breaths as in panting, but short breaths as in you're not taking fully exaggerated breaths. Right? And so at this stage, a lot of current practitioners have detailed, you know, things you can do to help, you know, you can count your breaths, you know, you can count on the in-breath, count on the out-breath, like the Buddha doesn't mention any of this, this is sort of subsequent scholars have had these, uh, had this advice and recommendations. My personal experience, I prefer to note, I don't really count, do the counting, but I note the middle. So there is a small gap between breathing in and breathing out, whether in the beginning or at the end, it doesn't really matter because it's a cycle, right? And that gap is what I tend to focus on. For me personally, because I'm focusing on the idea of peace, of cessation, of relaxation. I'm not, my focus is not on activity, but actually the lack of activity. I'm not focusing on the breath, but actually the lack of breath, right? So that's something that works for me, but most people tend to note on the beginning of an activity or the end of an activity, right? The beginning of the in-breath or the end, you know, end of the in-breath or beginning of the out-breath or end of the out-breath, but each to their own, right? Then after doing this breathing and coming to a natural rhythm, right? Then the Buddha recommends that one trains themselves. I will breathe in sensitive to the entire body. I will breathe out sensitive to the entire body. So now you're shifting. You're no longer too attached to the breath. Now you're paying attention. What is my body feeling like when I breathe? The expanse of the chest, the slow vibrations of movement, maybe your pulse. You can feel your pulse going, right? Your heartbeat, right? So taking into account that your breathing is actually not just the air, but it's everything. Everything is working to make that breathing happen. So being sensitive to the entire body is the, is the next thing that people do. And so this is why the Buddha recommends sort of calmer, more still ceasing of breath is because if you take big breaths, exaggerated breath, your entire body moves, right? And if you're in a very calm state, you'll just realize, you'll come to realize just how loud your body is when it comes to breathing. Just, you know, the noise you make when you breathe, right? Either through your nose or through your mouth, right? The beat of the pulse, the beat of the heart, right? The expanse of the chest, everything causes vibrations and big noises. So if your goal is relaxation, right, you're actually trying to calm that down. So you notice how loud your body is and you're slowly calming and resting. And so the final step for breath, the, the Buddha recommends that one trains themselves in breathing out bodily fabrication, in breathing in calming bodily fa fabrication, as in bodily activity. You're breathing to slowly rest your bodily activity, to not make that big of a movement, to not be so exaggerated, to not be so in vibration, to not be you know so excited, your heart rate isn't pumping, right? Really, really, so it's causing your entire body to move and shift, right? So slowly coming to calmness and peaceful in relaxation. 
So you'll find that you know when you're sleeping, right? The military teaches the sleeping technique, right? If you want to sleep really fast, right? If you want to calm down really fast, they do a breathing exercise, right? And so, in the same way, a main, maintaining awareness without falling asleep, but you want to reach awareness whilst your body is like it's as relaxed as if you're sleeping. No tension in the body, no big jolts of vibration, right? So the military does this, right? They claim like if you're a, a, a part of it, I guess it's because they're training so hard they can sleep wherever, right? But at moments where they have to get rest, right? Because they have a very short amount of window to actually do any rest, they can't afford to not go to bed, right? So they have breathing techniques to allow them to just fall asleep, right? And so breathing is very much part of that. So we wanna go just before that, but also want to relax, right? So in terms of breath, that is really, in terms of nominally saying this is meditation of breath, that's really all the Buddha says about breath in terms of the body. But breath is actually sustained, right? This mindfulness and awareness is sustained throughout all the steps of meditation because it's always a place you can come back to. It's a grounding technique, right? So if your mind wanders off, you can always come back to the breath. Your breath is always there for you, right? It's always got your back. And so, you know, a lot of this, this, the, the sutras mentioned, like enlightened beings, including the Buddha himself, always comes back to breathing meditation, right? It's, all, it's the place to start, right? So after these four steps, you've got the contemplation of the body, then you move on to the contemplation of feelings. So as you're breathing, right, you start to experience sort of rapture in that the ceasing of bodily activities, this rest, this relaxation, this peace, right? And then following that, you experience bliss, right? The joy of, of that rest, right? Then you come to experience your mental activities. So you move on from bodily activities to mental activities. What's going on inside your head? Then as you breathe, right, actually you'll find that your breath is also related to your mental activities, and if you breathe in the sort of correct way, then you can also calm your mental activities as well, not just your bodily activities, but your mind, right? Then once you've calmed the mind, you move on to like the third stage is contemplation of the mind, experiencing the mind, gladdening the mind, right? Centering the mind in concentration and then releasing the mind. So the mind kind of works like a breath as well. You can focus, you can also expand. Right? So there's the focusing of the mind and there's the expansion of the mind. Finally, there is contemplation of objects of the world, right? Of how things work, right? Trying to critically analyze the world now. So there's contemplating impermanence through the breath, right? The breathing in, breathing out. Contemplating of the fading of lust, of desire, of greed, right? Contemplating of cessation, right? Contemplating of disillusionment, right? So all of that comes from breath. Right? Breath is like the foundation of all of this stuff in Buddhist philosophy. So it's very, very, very crucial. Um, you mentioned something about the different types of breath. So, of course, everybody classifies them differently. But in Chinese Buddhism, in a Tentai school, they classify breath in terms of four categories. So there's panting, right, like rapid panting. There is unhurried breathing, which is just sort of the external breathing, not panting, right, not sort of big, deep breaths. Then there is the third one, the deep and quiet breathing, right? So the slow or short breaths, right? Short breaths is not a great translation, but you know, slow and sort of deep breathing that you can feel in your diaphragm, not in the chest, right? Deep within your sort of core. 
And then finally, there's the fourth type of breathing, which is stillness or rest. Right? Which is a very subtle type of breathing, right? Whereas almost the breathing is no longer existent. Right? So in Chinese Buddhism or in Chan, the idea is that if you reach the stage of jhana, your type of breathing will reach the fourth stage, where you're almost like you're not breathing at all. Uh, one thing to mention in biology is that actually you don't just breathe through your nose and your mouth. You also breathe to, through your skin. Your pores do a lot of breathing, right? And we know this because if you were to wrap someone up in cling film, they can die, right? If you stop someone's skin from breathing, actually, um, there was that James Bond film oh, yeah. where I think they painted someone in gold and she nearly died, right? Because if you suffocate the skin, right, that's really, really bad, right? So we don't notice this, but actually our pores actually do a lot of the breathing too. It's not as obvious uh, as your nose and mouth and your chest, but your pores actually also need to breathe. So in theory, that a high level practitioner where they reach a level of calm, their breathing just becomes through the pores do the breathing, right? They can settle, right? But of course, who knows, right? Only a person who knows, right? Are they breathing through their pores? They will know. But, you know, at moments of, in time, you can actually notice this. If you, you know, it's a cold day, you've got some boots on, right? Um, and you, you know, it's cold outside. You can actually notice that your feet are doing, you know, some breathing to alleviate some of the, the sweat and the heat. You actually do notice this, right? When you've had a bath, for instance, right, if you're having a shower, you can uh, occasionally at extreme temperatures, you do notice that your pores doing the breathing. I'm sure if you were to, um, you know, wrap a cold, wet towel around yourself and do the, the coldness meditation, you'll also notice, right, that your pores are breathing as well, in, in a sense. So, allegedly, right, very, very, a person who's reached that level of calm no longer has sort of visible signs of breathing. They're still breathing, otherwise they'd be dead, right? But it'll be less exaggerated in that sense. So it's moving away from exaggerated breathing into sort of cessation and calm. But of course, before you get there, right, you still have to train how to breathe. So it's not saying that, you know, all of the techniques, all the cycles are uh, incorrect. Those are good for training of beginning to notice right? Breathing through manipulation in the first place. Because we can't help, if we start to think about breathing, we can't help but manipulate it, right? Because we're very naughty in that sense. <laughs> if we think too much about something, we can't help but change it. And so in the beginning, right, of course, we're going to have to count, we're all going to have to choose a pace of breath, we're going to have to manipulate our breath. And then when we are comfortable, when we're ready, the Buddha says, well, you can start to not think too hard about it and just breathe, just notice it, just be aware of it. Right? And that will lead you to calmness rather than deliberately trying to manipulate the breath. Right? So breathing is one of those things that we never had to learn, technically. Right? We were born and we just knew how to do it. Right? So it's about disciplining so we breathe correctly, we breathe in the right sort of way, but also once we have got the skill, we don't do it consciously. Right? So we sort of, once we are able to train ourselves for, for, to allow the correct type of breathing to be sort of a, a muscle memory, we can now forget about controlling it and just noticing it. So there's a few things that I found interesting about the, your discussion about mouth breathing, is that in Buddhism, one of the positions of sitting properly is that one should lift their tongues, so they're just pressing slightly on the top of, your, of the roof of your mouth, 
and to slightly clench your jaw a little bit. And that is precisely, as you say, to avoid the notion of mouth breathing, right? So you maintain, right, your mouth is closed. Not fully clenched, not really, really tense, just lightly closed, right? And raising the tongue and clenching the jaw a little bit helps in establishing this. One aspect is that mouth breathing is actually not only, as you mentioned, for all the biological reasons to be, you know, not that beneficial, but also psychologically, it's very, very noisy. It's a huge amount of activity, right? You don't notice it, right? But when you really settle down in a quiet room, you realize just how loud a mouth breather is. <laughs> a lot of thing is going on, right? The opening of the jaw. And so opening your mouth and doing the breathing is actually quite a loud and vibrational, very active thing. So if you're trying to reach calming relaxation, nose breathing is far more suitable, right? It's far more, you know, appropriate to, uh, be less distracting in that in that sense. So I think, yeah, a lot of what you said corresponds very well to sort of the traditions of, of, of this practice of breathing practices. Um, it's a very old thing, right? If Hinduism, it, you know, had breathing exercises and their history traces back, you know, maybe 4,000 years, who knows right, how far back. Uh, the Chinese have been doing it way before Buddhism was introduced into China as well. Confucians and Taoists had their versions of breathing exercises. It is a very fundamental aspect to all types of uh, meditation. So I think, yeah, that's very, there's a very fascinating thing you brought up. Um, to sort of link it slightly back to art in a sense. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I oh, wanted yeah. to ask actually. <laughs> it's an um, art podcast. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I wanted to ask actually, do, do you teach people to notice their breath when painting? I imagine that, you know, with any form of hand-eye coordination, with any form of trying to do any sort of physical activity, I imagine a lot of artists tend to hold their breaths when they're doing something that's quite delicate. Right? I think it's just a very natural instinct to go, <gasps> and you know, and then try. And, and then of course, the more, the longer you hold your breath, the realize actually the more unstable you are because your hand starts to shake. Right? So they teach this for snipers as well, that controlling their breath is actually very crucial when you're manipulating sort of small movements. So does that come up in art? Um, not a lot. I have mentioned it a few times when I teach, mm. you know, very technical art. Um, mm. And exactly the way you're talking about, mm -hmm. when you're doing very fine brush work, you may have to hold the breath, mm. you know, to, to steady the hand for a moment. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, you also, like, I talked about it increases activity. Like, if you see something scary, you inhale, mm -hmm. right? Increase yeah. brain activity. You may also do that in that moment you're about to do the detail work. You know? Mm -hmm. Hold mm -hmm. and do it to increase, increase focus. Um, I want to bring in breathwork a lot into creative art, and I think I'm going to start mm -hmm. teaching that next year at the 92nd Street Y. I'm going to have a meditative painting class. That's kind of why I made this section, is to get prepped on it. This this podcast will just be my resource to go to for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I want to do um, a lot of diaphragmatic breathing, um, maybe that, that, that cyclic sigh I talked about, mm -hmm. to drop people into different states. I'd like to do different types of visualization, which would be a low alpha, high theta, you know, get in the hypnagogic state fast. So I'd use cyclic breathing for that. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not a, it's not a huge thing in art. No, mm-hmm. maybe if you're doing performance art or types mm-hmm. of music like trumpets yeah. and um, singing, then it's critical. But for painting, mm-hmm. no, not really. <laughs> yeah, for, for for singing in particular, right? Or yeah. any form of like physical, highly physically demanding stuff. I guess breathing. If you hold your breath, you can't do ballet, for instance, yeah. right? Because you'll just fall over. You're gonna faint, right? Yeah, because I, I, you know, this sort of corresponds. I don't know, because breathing techniques, I would imagine. Would apply to a lot of these i know for snipers there's like two schools of thought right there is the stability for holding your breath so if you want to stabilize your aim one school of thought well the easiest way is to just hold your breath the downside to that if you hold it for too long your hands become unstable right Mm -hmm. so it's not something that you can consistently do so you can only hold your breath for maybe 10 seconds before your aim is completely off but for that for that brief window you Mm -hmm. get moments of stillness the other school of thought says that you should ride the cycle of your breath. So you breathe, you allow yourself to move, but like waves, and you predict when you're going to move, and then you use the flow of your breath as a guide to when you should shoot. Right? So that's another school of thought. So that's much harder, right? Because it's less quick and it re- requires you to be able to note your cycles of breathing, of your movements, right? So. That sort of corresponds to, you know, Buddhism in a sense where in the beginning you can't help but manipulate your breath in order to get the effect that you want to achieve. But another sort of more stable way, a more long-term way is to just ride it out, to notice it, right? Um, Apparently holding your breath for, as a habit, right? Actually over time causes the jitters, right? Causes problems in performance, especially in something uh in high performance and i you know you see this a lot with um, professional athletes as well right at some point in their career they just start losing it for all sorts of reasons right so tiger woods had like a little bit of this at some point or you know a lot of uh professional sport you know people who play snooker for instance that require a lot on you know body coordination would sometimes get what they call the yips Right, so they suddenly lose all control over. They they've got it down for a very long time, and then something changes, and they they just can't focus on it anymore. Right, so that that you know consistently holding your breath is not a good idea. Um, is the idea so? Relaxation and breathing ultimately comes down to being able to be comfortable enough to notice the breath without subconsciously manipulating it beyond your own control, right? You, if there is going to be change in breath, you're the one who's dictating it, right? Rather than letting your breath dictate you, in mm-hmm. a sense, right? And doing it without your uh, notice, if anything. Yeah. Yeah, it's a fundamental, it's a mm-hmm. fundamental thing to meditation and just good living in general air air and breathing you have to breathe (laughs) i guess uh one thing also um the atmospheric pressure we didn't really talk about that but Mm. that also becomes important and more advanced breath work Mm. where you may hold the breath at atmospheric pressure Mm. right if you're in a higher altitude there's not Mm. as much pressure it may take a lot more force to breathe right yeah. And your, your, your musculature and your, your, your circulatory system may need a time mm-hmm. to adjust, right? Yeah. Same when you drop 
or go deep underwater and you're under a lot of pressure, whatever, mm-hmm. that also affects your your breathing. Yeah, I mean that we underestimate that aspect of it, but of course, athletes manipulate pressure a lot yeah. to their advantage. So they would deliberately during their training camps would go into high altitudes and run there. So they increase the oxygen, the O2 levels in their blood, mm-hmm. right? So that when they're back on normal altitude again, they can perform better, right? If you're used <laughs> to training at that altitude, then you have much more cardio, right? Or cyclists would blood dope. So they would train, right? So when they're at high altitudes, their oxygen levels of their blood would be much higher. They would take some of that blood out. And when it comes for their exercise, they would oh you know, God. transfuse that blood in so they have high <laughs> O2 levels of blood back in. So it's called blood doping, right? So it's, a, so it's not doping that you can get tested on because it's still your blood, right? But it's a way of, oh sa- it's like a battery of oxygen that you can save. <laughs> and so, you know, these, these things, you know, people manipulate to, you know, obviously we're not saying anybody should do that. But of course people have realized the importance of pressure uh, in this. And of course, you know, divers, right? They have to be very careful yeah. when they're emerging, right? Because they might get the bends, right? If they, they you know, go up too fast, right? Mm-hmm. They'll cause problems. But that's the problem with nitrogen, actually, in mm-hmm. the blood rather than oxygen. Yeah. And of course, people who go to space yeah. have a very similar uh, issue as well, trying to maintain pressure. So yeah, I mean, it's it's... It's literal physical pressure and also psychological pressure that our breaths. Well, I are. mentioned the atmosphere right off. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, another thing that I mm-hmm. thought was interesting, I haven't looked super deep into this, but carbonated water, you know, mm. sparkling water also helps with oxygenation mm. because the carbonation, you need the carbon dioxide to release the oxygen from the hemoglobin. So that was nice. I was I drink a lot of carbonated water, and I was wondering like, is this bad for me or not? When I read that, I'm like, okay, I'll keep drinking it in enormous amounts. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, there's like always like a cost and a f- and benefit, right? The yeah. the cost of it is that you're gonna get a lot of air in your stomach, right? So you're gonna fart more. <laughs> That's like, or you're gonna yeah. burp more, right? As a natural, you know, not all of it's going to be absorbed. But they also say, right, this is why carbonated alcoholic drinks gets you drunk faster. Because oh, really? it makes it easier to absorb the alcohol into the into the stomach, right? Oh. So if you want to get someone drunk fast, right, you mix carbonation uh, with um, with alcohol. And so in in the modern world, a lot of people do this, especially in in East Asia, right? In Korea, uh, especially, there's a new trend in use mixing sweet carbonated drinks with alcohol, and that's a killer. Like it's, <laughs> it it, it makes it taste better so like you don't notice that you're drinking so much alcohol but also absorbs the alcohol faster right <laughs> beer works because beer is on comparison much lower percentage of alcohol right but if you had a high percentage plus carbonation right that is a recipe for disaster hmm. so yeah carbonation is does help in the absorption uh of the stomach hmm. so yeah so one has to be so it's like a catalyst it's an accelerator whatever you put <laughs> mix in there right? especially alcohol gets absorbed faster yeah and gosh we've covered like so much information atmosphere yeah. pollution mechanical Biology. physical <laughs> historical yeah. traditions and this is just the beginning this yeah. is just the beginning of breathwork it is it is just as big as like meditation yeah, so this is just the primer. 
<laughs> you can go take a deep dive on it. I've been exploring yeah. it lately, and it's it's really it's really fun. And yeah, and I have met people who have had psychedelic experiences just through breathwork, which sounds incredible. I mean, you can. People have noted, like people who go to high altitudes would often bring like a can of oxygen. Oh, yeah. Pure O2 with them. And it's, you can get high off of that because it's like a huge hit. Like suddenly you've never been so awake before. And you're like, <laughs> and, so, and so people sometimes use it all up before they actually need it. <laughs> but yeah, I think, you know, in normal, habituated adult mind, you're on autopilot. You never mm-hmm. think anything about the air you're breathing, anything about your breath. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, you know, living in the city, I'm either on the street right next to cars dumping the O3 pollution or in the disgusting subway where the train comes and it's <laughs> pumping all that just gross air through or yeah. in a in a building that doesn't have clean air and then i go out to see my sister who lives in the countryside mm-hmm. and like i just my body feels so much better my mind is so quiet and stable to me it's very obvious how much the yeah. pollution affects and also my skin, like you said, during the summer here, when I first moved here, I noticed I get these red bumps mm-hmm. all over my skin. And it's from the O3 pollution, right? Especially when I was by the streets with the cars. I had like hives on my body mm-hmm. from uh, the pollution. So I guess that was the skin breathing in the, yeah. uh, the car exhaust. Um, so I think if you do live in a city, it's important to get out of the city as much as possible and get to the countryside, clean the system. Also, mm-hmm. in the breathwork traditions, doing the deep, full breaths removes a lot of toxins. You actually dump a lot of toxins through the exhale, you know, mm-hmm. and having a strong diaphragm to pump all that out, that air that gets stuck in the bottom of your lungs helps remove a lot of uh, toxins so critically important function you know it's not that mystical at all you can just directly take over your your body's physio- physiology just like taking any drug or whatever you can control your state of mind just through breathing mm-hmm. um, it's one of the key things that allow me to get a handle on uh, panic disorder you know uh, like you said and also externalizing the mind like you said, in that, noticing the details in the room. But um, I guess that's it. I guess that's, mm-hmm. that's breath work, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you, Dylan, for joining me today. And thank you, everyone who listened. And remember to be critically creative. <laughs>